This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. The Centers for Disease Control estimating that one in 59 children is diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. For those on the spectrum, the odds are against them going to college and working. The unemployment rate for autistic adults remains disproportionately high. By some estimates, just 58% of those people ever have a paying job. Some companies are now looking at how neurodiversity can be beneficial to the workplace and hiring more individuals on the spectrum. But this requires a lot of support and training for these young people, some of it starting at the high school level. Joining us to discuss what's been done to give this growing population a chance to succeed and how can businesses also be a part of that? We are joined on the phone by Dr. Paul Shattuck, who is an associate professor of health management and policy at Drexel University's Dornsife School of Public Health. And he's also leader of the Life Course Outcomes Research Program at the A.J. Drexel Autism Institute. And also joining us, Peter Capelli, management professor here at the Wharton School and director of the Center for Human Resources. Paul, Peter, great to have you with us today. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the invitation, Dan. Peter, nice to meet Thanks. you. Yeah. Thank you. Great to have you both with us. Uh, Paul, it seems like more kids these days are being diagnosed with, with being on the spectrum. Do you think this is changing the way that people and employers are, are, are thinking about autism? Yes, absolutely. There's no doubt that uh, there's a growing awareness about autism in the general public and certainly among businesses. Uh, it's big news. You know, 20 years ago when I started in this field, Autism was uh, a condition that few people had heard of unless they had seen the movie Rain Man. Um, but since the diagnostic criteria for autism have changed, we now include more people under that umbrella term than ever before. Mm-hmm. Um, and the needs of that population are growing. And uh, the numbers that you started off with at the top of the show translate into roughly 70,000 uh, teenagers each year entering adulthood. So, you know, over the next 10 years, we've got about 700,000 young people entering t- uh, adulthood, and they need jobs. And, and I would think that, at least right now, that, that this could be an untapped talent pool, especially when we're looking at a time right now where you have low unemployment at this point, Paul. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, many of the corporate partners and local business partners that we work with, um, many times people are motivated initially by a desire to kind of do do something good or to help a needy population. But then they quickly realize that the work that we do with business partners in the community um, helps them become better business people. Um, you know, mid-level managers who whose lives really revolve around team supervision um, come to find out through our coaching program that if you can do a good job supervising um, a worker on the autism spectrum, it actually makes you a better manager for all of your employees. Peter, why do you think then then businesses, I guess, have been somewhat reluctant to hire people uh, with this kind of condition in the past? Well, I think maybe we could just broaden it out a little bit uh, to all kinds of uh, possible candidates that employers have, you know, maybe not made such great efforts to hire and and, uh, you know, it's important to remember that employers are not rational calculating machines. They're just people like everybody else. And when they leave the office, they've got all the same dispositions and prejudices and uh, biases and lack of knowledge that everybody else has. So, uh, you know, the reason why employers uh, didn't spend a lot of time in the past trying to hire women and discriminated against them and minorities and people with other disabilities as well, you know, we're all pretty similar. 
uh, and I think it's, um, you know, a lot of it has to do with just what they think the appropriate thing to do is. Employers actually do quite a bit um, based on what they think they ought to be doing. So we looked into this a few years ago, even with efforts to try to reach out to high school kids. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the biggest motivator for doing this is because employers thought this was kind of the right thing to do. Uh, But it does make it a little a little challenging as to how you crack that, and maybe we'll talk more about that in a minute. Well, how, so how can an employer, in your opinion, get a candidate past the interview process, which seems to be one of the issues at, at play here, so that uh, that he or she is the best candidate for a particular job? You know, I think the problem, particularly with uh, people with disabilities, has to do with a, a kind of different kind of prejudice. So I, a couple of years ago, I spent time with the Office of Disability Employment Policy in the Department of Labor, U.S. Department of Labor, thinking about these issues. And, you know, I think the, the problem uh, really for people with disabilities of all kinds getting into the workplace, and, you know, Paul knows probably more about this than, than I do, but it's pretty widespread in all kinds of disabilities, not just autism. And I think the complication is that employers are, to be honest, feel uncomfortable around them. Um, sometimes they may think there's a lot of accommodations required, but mm-hmm. typically, you know, at least for, for some, the accommodations are pretty trivial. And uh, the, the complication they've got is they, they just feel uncomfortable around them. And the heart of that seems to be, frankly, the, the perception that the people with disabilities uh, are themselves uncomfortable or in pain or struggling. And particularly, this may seem surprising, but the prejudice is stronger against people with disabilities that you can see, right? Like somebody who's missing a limb, right. even though if you think about it, it's got almost nothing to do with their ability to perform contemporary jobs, which are typically not very physical, right? Uh, And I think the reason is the employer is thinking, boy, if that had happened to me, I would feel so awful. And that's what they think is going on with the people with the disability. In fact, you know, the evidence suggests that that's not the least bit true, but getting beyond that seems to be the hard part. Peter, that's a great point. You know, when we're talking with um, hiring managers and talent acquisition people, one of the, I do a little bit, you know, I click into professor mode a bit and I, I educate them about what we call our life course perspective. And if you look over the, over the, the life course, the vast majority of us will experience at least one episode of disability or severe health impairment. And so I try to reframe it for people so that they understand that it's not a, there's not a, like an us and them. There's like us mm-hmm. and those people with disabilities. The, the, mm-hmm. the, the fact of disablement, if you live long enough, will likely happen to you as well if you're not already disabled. And so mm-hmm. people get that. They actually like relate to it. And I'll ask people, like, think about people in your family. You know, maybe you have aging parents or you've got a brother who had a car accident. And for many people, that, that episode of, of disablement might be temporary and they have to go through a rehab kind of process. But that that helps connect it to people. And I think that mentally, building on what Peter was saying, you have to help people get over this us and them, those people with disabilities. You know, they need help. It's, it's not an us and them. Like, we're all human beings. We all have dreams to pursue and contributions to make. And fundamentally, these conversations are about unleashing human potential and 
creating robust communities that are the kind of communities and the kind of workplaces that we all want to be part of. So, but Paul, when you're working with various companies in these types of situations, what are you hearing from them and, and what are you maybe even anecdotally seeing that, that companies are already starting to do to try and, and make these types of adjustments? Yeah, it's an exciting time, to be honest. Um, I think a lot of companies, and, and not just companies, that to be clear, like the corporate sector certainly has got some, some big flagship initiatives. We work with large corporations. Right. But also in the public sector, you know, we have a, a growing partnership with the city of Philadelphia, including the airport. A lot of people don't realize that the city owns the airport. Yes. Um, <laughs> and we have uh, some of our former interns have been hired at the airport and um, have gotten through their first year of service and now have become you know, civil servants. They're fully vested in benefits. Um, and the pension plan. So, yeah, these are really good jobs. So we work with large employers, how we phrase it, not just corporate partners. Um, and it, it is an exciting time. One of the, the, the things that you have going on right now is your Transition Pathways program uh, there at the Institute. Tell us more. Yeah, no, that's super exciting. We, uh, we got that going a few years ago uh, with support from uh, President Fry here at, at Drexel, who's, who's now also um, very involved leading the Chamber of Commerce in Philly. So the Drexel Tran- uh, Transition Pathways Initiative is a growing collection of programs that we do in partnership with community partners. So Drexel, we're not looking to get into the, the business of doing direct service provision with, with customers and clients, but we have this convene, catalyze, and coach model right. where we'll work with groups of uh, partners in the community, say a, a large employer like the airport, and then we bring in the school district and maybe the state vocational rehabilitation and Medicaid agencies, and we convene the conversation. We have a way of working with groups around problem solving so that their resources are aligned in a better fashion to achieve better employment outcomes. We, we go into all these conversations assuming that no one has extra money to put into this. So we're always looking for a budget-neutral way to get players uh, interacting more effectively and collaborating more effectively simply by aligning existing efforts so that they're all rowing in the same direction to create these job um, opportunities. And it, and it works. Like People get excited because as soon as you get over that defensiveness, because people usually kind of guard it, they're like, oh, you know, they're going to ask me to send more money. <laughs> right. And I just always start those conversations with our business partners, like, look, this this will not cost you money. If anything, it will enhance your bottom line because it's going to make you better at your business. So a lot of the work we do, you know, a lot of businesses have experience with um, process workflow and, you know, increasing efficiency of workflow, um, that kind of stuff. And they're, you know, certainly workflow process engineers that businesses hire to come in and rethink the efficiency of their operations. We, we take that to a new level. I mean, there's this technology in our field called ABA, and we do something called a task analysis with a job. And it, we break it down in very fine-grained ways, step-by-step. Like, what does it take to process ID cards? What does it take to check in packages in the loading dock? Mm-hmm. And by, by deconstructing that workflow, um, we look at that with the, the supervisor and we say, you know, number one, can we improve this workflow and make it simpler so you can teach it to anyone? And then, then we show them how we train someone on the spectrum to do that task. And people, even people who are really skilled at workflow analysis, they often say, like, wow, you guys, like, helped us rethink our whole workflow, and yeah. now we can do it better and more efficiently. So that it's, it's a win-win. But I understand that there are situations, uh, uh, Paul, where 
there may be a stereotype associated to to someone who is on the spectrum as being good at math or technology. Yeah, and, yeah and, that stereotype and, is, is everywhere. So, so yeah. there is some truth to it. So we've done some research on college students who are on the autism spectrum. And true to the stereotype, the, the rate of what's called STEM majoring, science, technology, engineering, and math, right. the rate of majoring in those fields among autistic college students is in the mid-50s, like 54, 55 percent. In the general student population, it hovers around 24 percent. So there, there is a much higher rate of, of proclivity for those kinds of interests in this population. But then you've got the other 50% who have all kinds of interests. So that, that is definitely a stereotype that's not entirely unfounded. Um, but it would be a mistake for employers to assume that everyone on the autism spectrum is good at math or a natural with technology. And Peter, that, that still is, you kind of alluded to before, it's it's a very important component in this day and age of, uh, of work uh, that even though we have that low unemployment rate, there is still a, a, a valuable number of people out there uh, that are potential uh, employees from the uh, for the workforce. Yeah, I think in the good news, the reason this is a, a good time to make progress on these things is that um, employers understandably have been reluctant to pay more. And, you know, one of the ways you could meet your recruitment problems is by raising your wages. Uh, but if you don't want to do that, you got to get more creative on the recruiting side. And, uh, you know, frankly, they haven't been very recruit- very creative yet, but uh, I think they're they're starting to get more creative. You see in other ways, for example, employers being much less concerned now about criminal records uh, for employees and, you know, much more open to hire uh, people who are unemployed. There was a time they didn't want anybody who didn't have a job already, you know. Right. So uh, so this is a good time in that sense for uh, for us to make progress, in, uh, including all kinds of people who have had difficulty getting jobs before. Mm-hmm. We are joined on the phone by uh, Paul Shattuck of uh, Drexel University, Peter Capelli from here at the Wharton School. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. I would imagine, Paul, that when you're when you're talking about the the business landscape, that there would be benefits for supervisors, managers, and the like uh, in teaching other employees about supervising autistic employees, correct? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Again, these are these are generalizable skills. You know, this isn't. That's what I always try to get get over to people in the first conversations. Is this is not this is not a charity act um, right. to do something nice for a, a person with autism. This is about you know having a more inclusive workforce because we value diversity in our society. Um, it's about connecting with your customers, you know, given back to the initial comment at the top of the hour, autism is everywhere. I mean, who doesn't know somebody that's affected by autism now, right? right? And so a lot of businesses have clearly gotten onto that, that there is a sort of social marketing uh, upside to being known as an autism-friendly workplace, right? Because there are families out there who have members um, on the autism spectrum, and those families are customers. And part of it is also emphasizing the fact that, that these are careers, not just necessarily jobs, correct? That is correct. Yeah, and that's another thing that we're really passionate about with our work in Transition Pathways here at Drexel is we're trying to change the conversation around the, the, how, how we approach employment for people with disabilities more generally, which, to be honest, and, and Peter, you correct me if you think I'm wrong, but my experience working 
more generally in the field of disability and employment, is that the thinking is like we have to find a job and get this person placed, and then and then our job is done, right? And and you know in this day and age, you know we're, we're decades away from that chapter in our society's history where people would get a job after high school and stay in that job for 30 or 40 years, right? Those, those days are gone. Um, we need to be able to train young people to have the general competency to be able to shift jobs, upskill, have a career, try out different careers. And, and we expect that for our, our young people with disabilities as we do for young people without disabilities. And so we talk much more about career lifecycle management than we do about job placement. Peter? Uh, yeah, well, I guess that sounds right. I think the challenge, uh, unfortunately, for people with disabilities of all kinds is that uh, in the old days, maybe you just had to persuade an employer once to hire you. <laughs> and now, you know, now the complication is um, places close down, uh, offices get uh, shut down, people get laid off, and you got to go back into the labor market uh, again and, and persuade another employer. The good news is that it's it's far easier for anybody who's having a hard time to get a job if you've already got one. If you've right. had one before, it's cracking it the first time that's so hard. You know, Dan, if you wouldn't mind, I, I, I would like if Paul could say just a little bit about, yep. we talk about the autism spectrum, about what are we talking about and what are the attributes of people you're trying to place and, and what is different about them, if anything, than other employees that uh, employers would bump into? Oh, I'd be happy to address that. So it's a hard question to answer because the autism spectrum is famously diverse and, and heterogeneous. Um, and so we try to tailor our, our programs to different sort of uh, segments of the autism spectrum, if you will. So we have, you know, a couple of programs that are specifically targeted uh, at creating internship opportunities for teenagers, inner city youth who have autism and also an intellectual disability. And many of those young people um, cannot speak or they have very limited verbal ability. Mm -hmm. um, so we get them trained up with communication devices or iPad or something like that. And that, the needs of that group of people is, is extremely different from, the, say, the young people on campus here who are matriculated undergraduate students who are on the autism spectrum. And Drexel has a flagship program that supports um, autistic college students. And to my knowledge, I think it's the only free one in the country. Most, most colleges charge families an extra fee to support their students with autism. Um, and the needs of those young people are, are, are very distinct. But, but what they all have in common, the, the, the core issue, if you will, in, in autism spectrum disorder is um, twofold. One is a difficulty with what we call social communication. So for those who do have the ability to speak and use language, they, they often have difficulty using language in a social way to interact reciprocally, um, to be able to sort of take, take the perspective of another person in conversation. Um, and then also this general catch-all category of what we call repetitive interests and behaviors. Um, so for some people, they might have like a really particular interest in you know heating vents or geography or The Simpsons or something like that. And or they might have physical behaviors like rocking back and forth or flicking their fingers or making odd noises in kind of a repetitive manner. Um, and particularly, you know, those those outward behaviors, like you said earlier, Peter, for people that that makes for people with autism who have those repetitive behaviors, rocking back and forth and so forth, then it becomes a very visible disability. Right. Um, and that can be off putting for some people. And we have to educate people that, you know, you don't have to be scared of this. It's just it's just how they 
soothe and calm themselves. That's that's their form of fidgeting. Which, which Paul, I mean, part of, of what we see, I think, in, in business in general and in many cases in the office setting uh, is, is a growing level of stress by people uh, of all kinds, you know, who are dealing with the stresses of being in the office. Uh, That's a great point. And so one of the one of the things we work on with all of our autistic um, interns and, and young employees is stress management and coping with anxiety. Right. And again, like as we're teaching our young people with autism how to manage stress and anxiety, those are skills that we're sharing with supervisors, and they report back to us that those are things that they share with the other employees. And we're we're helping people in supervisory roles understand the link between anxiety and performance and that that really, you know, enlightened leadership and and supervision should include an awareness of how anxiety, you know, there's an edge. There's like a little bit of anxiety can make people perform at a higher level. Too much anxiety, people shut down and and get overwhelmed. And I I wanted to circle back to one thing. You know, people tend to think of, um, you know, autism, employment as being kind of like a, a back office thing, right? And because people with autism aren't good with people, right? That's, I just kind of said that. But I will tell you, like, we've seen some remarkable successes um, with autistic employees succeeding on the front end of a business. So an example, not, this is not one of ours, but I was at a DMV recently out in the Burbs, uh, getting my license renewed. And the, who is the greeter at the DMV? Is this young man, clearly autistic, um, he's rocking back and forth, and he is unfailingly polite. And he knows, he has completely mastered all the different things that you need, no matter what reason you're coming to the DMV for. Mm-hmm. If you're getting your license renewed or you're picking up plates or whatever, he's like, these are the forms you need. You need to stand in line number seven and do this, this, this. You know, he's like, <laughs> he's perfect. Like, he's got it down. He's yeah. absolutely pleasant. He's unflappable. He doesn't, he doesn't respond off of people's negative energy if they're anxious. He was amazing. <laughs> yeah. It was actually good for me to see that because I, you know, suffer from my own stereotypes and biases and I need to be challenged on those as well. Well, that that then tells, uh, wants me to ask you about the difference between how this is being perceived in a private sector position compared to a public sector position, which obviously working at a DMV is. Right. Absolutely. It doesn't get more, you know, in the public than that. The greeter at a DMV. We're joined by Dr. Paul Shattuck of uh, Drexel University, Peter Capelli of the Wharton School. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. One of the, the topics that we mentioned in the uh, in the open here, uh, Paul, is neurodiversity. A- and this obviously is part of, of what we're discussing here because of the fact that there are a variety of disorders uh, that could be in play here. Yeah, exactly. So, so neurodiversity, there's, there's no consensus yet exactly what that term means. And I see that term used in a lot of different ways. The way okay. we've taken that on, certainly in interacting with employers, is you know, we make the, the analogy to an ecosystem. You know, an ecosystem is stronger when there's diversity. Um, you have multiple different kinds of plants and animals coexisting. Um, same thing in, in a workplace. If you only have one type of person in a workplace, that's not good for business. You know, having a diverse workplace is good for many reasons. And neurodiversity is simply understanding that people's cognitive and social abilities vary a lot. And um, it's another really common story I hear from supervisors is how working with an autistic employee gives them a fresh perspective on things. Like they'll see things through that autistic employee's eyes or the autistic employee will make a comment 
about like why do you guys do this like that and people will kind of stop in their tracks and just say like yeah yeah why do we do that yeah <laughs> and so you know having that that diversity of perspectives in the workplace i think we all realize is is good for business and neurodiversity simply means that the diversity concept gets extended to sort of neurologic cognitive and social functioning Peter, are you hearing, I guess, anecdotally, some of these these benefits that are coming and uh, that companies are seeing as well? Well, it, it's a good question, Dan, because I think um, lots of organizations are confused about these issues because, on the one hand, you do hear all this stuff about diversity broadly defined, and I think they recognize that it shouldn't just be about the kind of diversity you can see. Uh, but on the other hand, you hear them also talking about this uh hiring for cultural fit uh, all the time, yeah. uh, which I, I worry about a lot when when uh, employers uh, say that, mm-hmm. um, because I think that kind of is pushing in the other direction. And it's kind of worrying, to be honest, because uh, they rarely define it. <laughs> you know, yeah. What does cultural fit mean? And they can't agree as to what it would look like. And so when you do that, it just ends up being code for hiring people who you know, I think are like me or that I'm comfortable with. And, you know, for a variety of reasons, we're more comfortable with people who are more similar to us, at least initially. So, you know, that's pushing in the other direction. So I, I think it is important for uh, employers to think this through and, and think about what they really need and and go from there um, and take uh, and take action on what they really need. Paul? Yeah, no, I completely agree that that that. That phrase, you know, cultural fit, or we're we're looking for somebody with a good fit. That that's, I mean, often code for we want people like us, you right? Know? And that that's it's just narrow. Yeah, I don't I don't think we can afford to to think that way and act that way in in today's um, in today's workplace. Gentlemen, thank you both for your time, Paul. Thank you again, Peter. Great to talk to you again, Dan. Thanks so much for having me. Really a pleasure being with you. Thank you. Great to have you both with us. Dr. Paul Shattuck from Drexel University, Peter Capelli from here at the Wharton School. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 